now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. Wow, thank you so much for being so responsive in that prayer time. And uh, our worship team, didn't they do a great job of leading us? Katie did fantastic taking us into some worship this morning. And, and today we're continuing our series on artificial intelligence by asking the question, what is greatness? What is greatness? And so as I punch that into the, uh, into the web browser, the chat GPT prompt, um, I got this response back. Here's what AI thinks that greatness is. In general, greatness refers to an exceptional level of achievement. It's all about achievement. And that's kind of the theme that we've seen over the last few weeks. It's all about what I can do, what I can, how I can achieve some great accomplishment or whatever, some skill, some quality that surpasses ordinary or average standards. It's often associated with a remarkable talent, remarkable accomplishments, or significant impact in a particular field or area. And that's how artificial intelligence would define true greatness. When you were a kid, you had your own measurement of what true greatness was, right? When you were just like two, three, four years old, your, great, your measure of greatness looked like this. It was how tall you were. You know, you had the little doorpost, the jam, the marks on the jam, and you would stand there and you'd stand tall and mom would mark it or dad would mark it. And man, you've grown three inches since four months ago. And then they hit that one and they're growing like a foot a week, you know, like they're eating everything. And you know, the taller you were, the, the greater you felt how tall you could measure up to your dad or your mom or your sibling or a friend at school, you thought you had hit the mark, so to speak. But for us, it's no longer a chart on a wall. As we get older, it's no longer a chart on a wall. It's no longer a mark on the door jam. There's something different. We have different charts. We have different ways of measuring greatness. And so I did a little research and uh, found out that there are some ways that us as men measure greatness. Greatness. And just a few that I jotted down for us today. Um, number one is achievements. Men measure their greatness by their achievements, whether it be in business or whatever. What can we achieve? Um, you know, hiking, uh, it's, uh, it's athletics, as we'll see over here in just a few moments, but achievements. Maybe it's your financial success, is how you're measuring greatness. How much money's in the 401k? How much money you make annually? How little debt you have, whatever financial measurement you have, that's how you may feel like you are great by your financial success. Maybe it's leadership ability. How many people fall under my authority, my leadership, recognition and awards? We like to keep those kinds of things. You know, I ran that half marathon about a year and a half ago, and it'll be my claim to, flame, claim to fame the rest of my life, you know, and I've got that medal. Just to remind Tracy, I ran a half, okay? I ran that far. I need to get one of those stickers on my car so people know. But recognition and awards, we want those kinds of things. Those are the ways that we feel like we've achieved and accomplished something. We feel like we're, we're, we're great by those accomplishments. Maybe it's physical abilities. Maybe we would just like have like five or six guys up here and have a push-up com competition. You know, Tom, you in? Who you want to go against? Anybody, anybody in the building? Tom's got you. But we would measure that. You know, how much can you bench press? How much can you squat? How fast can you run? How, and it's, it's physical abilities. It's physical abilities. Intellectual accomplishments. This is where I get my pride. That is a, that is a lie. I'm one of the dumbest people you'll ever meet. I can just act like, I just stay in Holiday Inn Expresses. 
if you're, if you're old enough to remember that commercial. Um, but intellectual accomplishments, you know, the degrees, whatever those kinds of things, or problem-solving abilities. And we feel like we're great by maybe these standards. Maybe you have your own. As a man, you have those things. And then there's women. You have your own measure of greatness. And I'm going to not dive into these too deeply because I've already gotten in trouble in the first service, so I'm going to try to keep myself pure of insults in this one. But uh, that's probably going to be a moot point. Um, Number one, personal achievements again. You know, women have things that they like to accomplish, personal or professional success. There's some ladies that, that measure their greatness by how well they do in their profession. Uh, but a lot of ladies, it's their impact on others. How can I influence? How can I have an impact on the people around me? Maybe it's meaningful relationships. You, you don't like those um, just frivolous relationships. You want them to have meaning to them. You want to know that you can trust somebody that they will keep that confidentiality, that they won't turn their back on you. You love meaningful relationships, and the more you have, the more you feel like you um, have accomplished or you're, you're greater. Contributing to their communities. Man, ladies love to do that. And then advocating for those in need. You know, our foster care ministry, we had our first meeting, and there was like all ladies, like three men in the room. Because ladies really will jump on board to advocate for something they believe in and they believe strongly in. And, and the more um, you can advocate, the more maybe you feel like you've accomplished something. Maybe it's gender equality and you're all about that and, and, and you have these measurements of success. So we got men, we've got women, and since it's Father's Day, let's even look at fathers typically measure their greatness by nurturing and supporting. How well do we nurture and support our families? How well are we serving as a role model for our sons, maybe for our daughters to some degree? How well are we modeling a good marriage? We look at those things and we go, man, the more I can be a good positive role model, the greater I feel. Maybe it's building strong relationships with your children, you know, making sure that you spend enough time with them, teaching them how to navigate life, that first breakup that they had, the first fight they had with their best friend. You want to make sure they got the, the last punch in, you know, that wouldn't be good parenting necessarily. But supporting their dreams, you know, you want to raise your child up to in the way that they should go so you're helping support their dreams. And then providing for them, providing uh, an income and being the breadwinner. You know, there's, there's all of these measurements of greatness. So men have theirs, women have theirs, uh, fathers, we have ours, teenagers have theirs as well. You know, it's, it might be how many friends you have. It might be how many followers you have on social media. Oh, wait, I'm talking about parents again. Um, it might be all of those things. It might be athletics. It might be some academic accomplishment. You know, how many, how many of those little award things you get when you graduate, those kinds of things. College plans. You know, what college, how many different universities was I accepted by? And we measure greatness by all these different means. And we have those. Men have theirs. Women have theirs. Fathers have theirs. Teenagers have theirs. But guess who else has his measurement of greatness? God does. God does. And as he was, as Jesus was God in the flesh, living on this earth, he journeyed around with 12 guys he called his disciples. And as they journeyed around, Jesus was often overhear conversations that they would have and Jesus, in his discernment, would know what kind of conversations they would have. And one that he caught them having more than once was who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He heard them talk about it so many times. We get several records in, in Scripture about it. But they would be like, all right, who is going to be sitting on the right hand of Jesus? Who's going to be right there next to him? Who is it that he's going to call on to pray over the, the, the suppers, you know, the, the meal, the big, great banquet? You know, they didn't really say that, but, but they were always having these discussions about greatness. And so Jesus would oftentimes have to set them straight. 
You know, one day they're out on the side of a hill and, and, um, and he has to set them straight on a number of things. And one of them was about feeding a crowd. We'll talk about it in just a few moments. But greatness was often the topic of their discussion. We're gonna look at a passage in Matthew chapter 18 today, Matthew chapter 18. And the story that we're gonna look at actually happened. And it's recorded by three out of four of the gospel writers. It's recorded in three, all three of the synoptic gospel writers. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptics because they share a lot of the same information. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a former tax collector called to be a follower of Jesus. He wrote the gospel. He wrote the story of the life of Jesus from his perspective as he was influenced and as he was led by the Holy Spirit. Then you've got Mark. Mark was not a direct follower of Jesus, but he was a direct follower, a disciple of, of, uh, of Peter. And so Peter was a disciple of Jesus Christ who actually had all of these things that he had seen and Mark records the life of Jesus according to Peter's perspective under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then there's Luke who was a doctor. He was so brilliant. He would go around and he interviewed people and he was doing this so that he would create this this um, complete work of the life of Jesus so that he could present it to a guy by the name of Theophilus so that Theophilus would have a written account of Jesus' life. And so these three gospel writers all thought that this story that we're gonna look at today was important enough to include in their gospel. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they recorded this. And here's what it, how it starts in Matthew 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you're gonna see a couple of phrases when you read scripture, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And sometimes we try to differentiate the two of those. Well, let me just tell you today, they're the same thing. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are just interchangeable terms. As a matter of fact, kingdom of God appears most of the time. It's 68 times in 10 of the New Testament books. We have 68 times that kingdom of God is used. And then there's 32 times that kingdom of heaven is used. And Matthew is the only person who uses that term. And he uses it because he was writing primarily to the Jews. And it was a term that they identified well with better. And so they're interchangeable. As you can see, even last week in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus used those two terms interchangeably, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. But I just wanted to take a few moments just to explain to you what exactly the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is. And so first of all, I want you to understand the kingdom of heaven is where God reigns. So God reigns supreme. He is the supreme authority. He is the sovereign, meaning that he rules and reigns over the kingdom. So anywhere that God reigns, the kingdom of heaven is present, okay? So the next thing about it is the kingdom of heaven is both visible and it's invisible. So when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he was telling them what the kingdom of heaven looks like. As someone who is a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, here's how you behave yourself. Here's the kingdom ethics that you should live by. And so Jesus writes those things. And so as we live out those kingdom ethics, as we live out these, these things that Jesus shared with us about living in the kingdom, we make the kingdom of heaven visible. We make the kingdom of heaven visible to those around us. But at the same time, it's also invisible. 
meaning that there are principalities or rulers of the darkness that are at battle with one another. So there's this, there's this eternal um, spiritual kingdom that you and I can't see that is just as real as the one we can see. And then the final thing is the kingdom of heaven is now and it's not yet, meaning that right now God reigns. He is the sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord over the universe. So his kingdom is now, but it is yet to come. Believers are actively taking the kingdom or are taking part in the kingdom of God now, although the kingdom will not reach its full expression until sometime in the future. And when it does, it will be um, everywhere. It'll be evident everywhere. And so we're already in the kingdom, but we do not yet see it in all of its glory. So that's just kind of the, the text here that he's talking about. He said, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And, he's, and when Jesus asked this question, or when they asked him this question, Jesus calls, he calls over a little child and he puts him in the midst of them. Now, for children, it's totally different in Jewish culture than it is today. For many families, our lives revolve around our children and their schedules, right? So no matter what, whether they're um, an infant and you've got to be home before their bedtime, or whether they're a teenager and your life revolves around their ball schedule or their extracurricular activities or school, our lives tend to revolve around our children. But in Jewish culture, that was not the case. In Jewish culture, the kids' lives revolved around the parents' lives. The, kid, the, the kids went whatever the parents went. If the parents were out late, the kid didn't go to bed at 8 o'clock. Okay, they just hung out with the parents. So they were not, they really had no status whatsoever in Jewish culture. They were consumers of resources and not a whole lot more than that. So they weren't really respected a whole lot. You know, they were seen, to, they were to be seen and not heard. That was the way children reviewed. And so as Jesus pulls this little child in, I'm sure that these disciples are going, what does this insignificant of no count child have to do with anything to do with the kingdom of heaven? And so I want us to look at just a few things that I believe are characteristics that we can see from this little interaction, characteristics of those who would have greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing is this, that they are teachable. A great person in the kingdom of heaven is someone who is teachable. Here's what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he was talking about there is he's saying, you've got to change your way of thinking. You've got to change your view of life. You have to change your view of yourself. You've got to turn and become like a child. You've got to be teachable. I will say this, that my grandchildren are extremely teachable. They're in a, a phase of their life right now that, man, they are learning so much. Some of them are learning to talk. We got trying to get one of them to learn to walk. We got one that's just, you know, seven years old, and it's just like he just, like, information just absorbs into them. But they're so teachable. You can teach them things so easily. They're, they're running the remote control. They're running an iPad. They're they're just so smart. And, and what we need to do is we need to have this teachable spirit about us and not be so prideful and arrogant to think that we've got it all figured out. And so what Jesus was talking about here is you've got to turn, you've got to change your way of thinking about yourself. 
You've got to change the way of thinking about yourself. He said, you've got to turn. You've got to basically repent. You've got to change your way of thinking about your sin and yourself, and you've got to bring yourself to a place of humility before God, which brings us to the second one, and that is a teachable spirit and a humble spirit as well. Here's what he said. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine Jesus pulling this little child up there in the midst of all these grown men? And in the culture in which he lived, he would know that he was not very valued in that sense. And the, the humility that child, I can just imagine him sitting there in this, in this circle, arms folded up and his head down with, this, with just this attitude and posture of humility. But humility is one of the things that most of us struggle with. And we want people to think that we know everything. We want to make sure that people, we try to get the last word in. We want to make sure people think that we're brilliant. We want people to think that we've got it all figured out. In reality, we need to humble ourselves. And a person who comes to Jesus in humility recognizes Jesus's greatness and his own lowliness. That's how Jesus even started the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they need a savior. Blessed are those who realize the brokenness of their spirit. That's where it all begins. And so we need to start with a humble attitude toward Christ and toward others around us. He says, whoever receives the one Such child in my name receives me. So this child is sitting there. He says, I just want you to know, when you receive a child like this, you're receiving this child in my name. You receive me, basically. So we got teachable, we got humble. The next one is we need to be vulnerable. Man, kids are so vulnerable, right? And I'll tell you, one of the the cool things to do is like like lead a, a, a kid's prayer time. Say, hey, have you got anything going on at home that we need to pray about. And you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna tell about mommy and daddy's fight they had the night before. They're gonna tell about their brother or sister who has the bedwetting problem. (laughs) At home. (laughs) I'm kidding. They're gonna tell about the dog that's sick. They're gonna tell about everything. Mommy and daddy say we don't have any money. They're gonna, they're so vulnerable. They're so vulnerable. So if you want to know what's going on in the church, serve in our kids' ministry. This is actually a recruiting message for our kids' ministry. So if you want to know what the latest gossip is, go lead a prayer time with six-year-olds. They will tell you everything. They are so vulnerable. They tell you every little sore they get. They want you to know. They want you to kiss it. They want you to make it better. They are so vulnerable. And, and, And greatness in the kingdom of God looks a lot like that. Here's what Jesus said. He says, because kids are so vulnerable, it's easy for this to happen. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, he said, if you take advantage of their vulnerability, we're gonna come back to this, but you better, you're better off drowned in the ocean because kids are so vulnerable, but it is a characteristic of those of us who are in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, men, you don't have your life all together. We've got struggles, right? And we need to find a place that we can be vulnerable. We need to find a place, some friends that we can say, listen, I am struggling with this and I need your prayers. I need your encouragement. I need a text message from you. I, and you make yourself stop pretending you've got it all together because none of us do. 
and stop pretending like you're controlling your life because you're not. We need to be vulnerable like a little child. But the other thing, the next part of this verse, we need to understand how valuable we are. We are valuable to God. Here's what Jesus said about the little child. He said, if you cause one of them to stumble, stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone fastened around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It'd be better for us to tie a cinder block around you and throw you off the side of a cruise ship than that you would take advantage of the vulnerability of a little child. You deserve the worst thing you could possibly get. And for you and me, do you know how valuable we are to God? We are so valuable that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins and mine. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He didn't tie a millstone around his neck. He hung him on a cross for your salvation and for my salvation because you and I are wretched sinners who need a savior. But we are valued by God to the sense that he would send his only son to die for us. The next thing, a little child, the helpful servant. Aren't you so glad when your child gets old enough to do chores around the house? Oh, what a blessed day. I mean, what a blessed day when I no longer had to load the dishwasher. What a blessed day when I no longer had to mow my yard. I remember days when my son was a teenager and I'd sit back on the screened in back porch and I'd sit in my rocker and I'd have my cup of coffee or my sweet tea and I'd watch him mow the grass. I would just like, this is the greatest reward as a parent that he's out there in the heat and I've got a ceiling fan cooling me down while I'm drinking sweet tea. That was just a great moment. You know, we, they could bring you a cup of coffee, you know, all those just wonderful things. But, but children, there, there's a place when they, when, as they're growing up that they want to be a helpful servant. I mean, you can ask them to do things. They're trying to clean a window and they're smearing more than they're doing, but they're trying to help, right? They're just trying to become a helpful servant. Here's how Jesus put it. And he sat down and he called the, the 12 and he said to them, this is Mark's account. We're picking up there. If anyone would be first, like you guys are talking about, I heard you. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. I mean, if you wanna be great in the kingdom, Learn to be a servant of everybody around you. This is what I was referring to earlier. Jesus had this big crowd on the side of the hill one day, and they got hungry. And the disciples, you know what they said? Jesus, send them away. Just send them away and tell them to go into town and get something to eat. And Jesus said, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to serve this crowd. So I want you to sit them down in groups, and we're going to turn five of these, these loaves and fishes into a buffet for all of these people. So he was teaching them what it was like to be a servant. Jesus, the supreme of all creation, Jesus Christ humbled himself and became a servant to all. And that's what he's telling you. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, dads, serve your family. Moms, serve your family. Students, serve your family. Serve your community. Serve those around you. That's when you are elevated to a place of greatness. And we'll jump through these last two. Number, another one is insignificant. Now, I told you you were valuable, but at the same time, as though we're valuable, we're also insignificant. What I mean by that is that in God's grand scheme of things, 
you and I are not the main character. When you read scripture, the Bible was not written about you. It was written to you and for you, but it was not written about you. It was written about Jesus Christ from, from the beginning to the end. He is the main character. So in this whole scheme of things, you and I are just a speck on the timeline. We are just a, a vapor in, in, God's, in, in God's grand scheme of things. So as though we, we are still valuable, but at the same time, there's a level of insignificance to God's overall thing. You and I just get to participate in this. And we should be thankful for that. And so he says this, he says, and he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And this is where I would think, you know, when we get into God's glory, when we get in the midst of God's glory and we start to understand how great and awe-inspiring God is, we should feel insignificant. Like a little child in the midst of all of these great grown men who had never probably even spoken to this child. But yet in that moment, I'm sure there was a level of insignificance because they were standing in among what they would look at as giants. And you and I, when we stand up next to God, we should feel insignificant because of all of his glory and how broken we are. And then finally, characteristic greatness is a lovability. Children are so lovable. When I get to do these baby dedications, when I get to sit up here and, and hold these little babies, there is just something about those moments that I just cherish those because there is something lovable about a baby. And I've always wondered, if you can't love children, gosh, there's gotta be something broken in your heart because children are so lovable. And Jesus, more than once, he calls the little children and he received them and he sat them upon his knee and he would talk about how great these children are. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So listen, there's something about receiving a child that indicates where you are with God. They're so lovable. And as children of the kingdom, why can't we be lovable? I mean, really, have you ever met an unlovable Christian? They just don't ooze the love of God out of them. It's like, you really disgust me. But I think God is calling us, hey, listen, take on a characteristic of a child and just be lovable. Just try to, I mean, you don't have to be hated, but the world's gonna hate us for some things, but we don't have to make them hate us. Just don't be, you know, obnoxious. And so he takes on these characteristics. And so I finally just summarize it this way. I'm not sure about this word, but I used it anyway because it sounded good. In the kingdom of heaven, the humblest are held in the highest esteem. It actually is a word because I did a spell check to make sure. But in the kingdom of heaven, the humblest are held in the highest esteem. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Be a servant. Learn how to serve other people. Learn how to serve others in the community. Learn how to serve your family. So my question to you, how are you measuring greatness in your life? How are you measuring greatness in your life? Is it by your accomplishments? Is it, is it by your financial security? Is it by your, your career? 
Is it by, and you just fill in the blank with whatever it is, how are you measuring greatness? But then how are you measuring up to God's standard of greatness? That's the real question. That's the real question. Are you a humble servant of all? Listen, today, if you've never received that free gift of eternal life that God has offered you through his servant son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for you, today would be a great day for you to receive that salvation. We'd love to invite you to the altar today to pray with us. You can meet us back in the guest VIP room. But today would be a great day for you to take that step of faith and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But all of us need to humble ourselves and be servants if we are to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's stand together. Father, we are thankful today. We're thankful for children, how valuable they are and how the world would like to take them and pervert them, help us to guard them with everything that we've got. But God, I pray as we become, or as we are servants of the kingdom, that we would take on some of the characteristics that we've talked about today. So Lord, do a work in our hearts that only you can. Bring us to our knees, spiritually, physically, whatever you have to do in order to get us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.